Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. In episode 69, Jawhead sits down with Dr. Astrid Schultz, an ecological economist and social entrepreneur, to discuss how her career arc has cut across governance and ownership and the resulting innovations she and her teams have delivered. Along the way, we cover ecological economics and how it values systems and people in addition to profits, why the current org structures were not a fit for her and how she and her co-founders innovated on the Zebras Unite co-op and the innovation they've spurred to deliver more capital and social enterprises at every level, from idea to C to series A and beyond. It's a valuable episode for any entrepreneur considering how to start a new venture outside of the traditional VC model. We hope you enjoy. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Dr. Schultz. You can call me Astrid. Oh, excellent. So, well... (laughs) We'll give you, well, just to give you Dr. Astrid Schultz, your full title. Um, Great. So one, I think I'm super excited to have you on. This is one I've been looking forward to for a long time, just because we don't really have anyone who has a combination of your background and practical experience. And I don't think we've talked with anyone who quite has it all on that front. You know, just I'm already kind of giving away the podcast, but, you know, we're going to get into a bit of ecological economics, a little bit of cooperatives, a little bit of capital formation. It's all super interesting to me. So I'm super excited to have you on today. Well, I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, let's let's get into it. So the way we usually start these things is we just like to ask uh, a simple question. Maybe walking us through your origin story in a few minutes is really like where we like to start. So I'll kick it over to you. Start anywhere you like. <laughs> How much time have you got? Oh, plenty. Um, <laughs> no, I usually like to start by saying I'm um I'm a recovering nonprofit executive turned tech entrepreneur. Uh, I came out of ecological economics, as you already told your audience, and then proceeded to work in a very innovative conservation-based organization uh, for the better part of 15 years. It was um, interesting enough and varied enough that I could repot myself several times. And the TLDR on that organization, EcoTrust, really is that it was creating innovative business models to solve large-scale problems in the bioregion here on the west coast of North America. I was initially a staff economist, then created an internal consulting practice, and then, of course, no good deed goes unpunished. So I kept being promoted until they made me president. Um, And in the midst of all of that, We had begun to use technology. Um, You know, we're always tech heavy in terms of using GIS, early adopters of technology. Mm. And I saw an opportunity about 10 years ago. uh, It was a really simple minded question to say, what if we use the then contemporary and emergent technologies and like social media platforms for coming on the market, right? And two sided marketplaces and what have you. Craigslist for crying out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I said, how can we put those technologies in the service of people and planet. And um, the idea for what is now my company, Amalaria, was really born at EcoTrust, right? So that's the recovering nonprofit executive turned tech entrepreneur part. And when it was time for me to leave, what I really wanted to do was take that nascent idea of what's now Amalaria and turn that into a standalone thing and then promptly ran into all the challenges of raising capital while female raising capital while trying to build purposeful technology. And that led me in a fairly direct path to my co-founders at Zebras Unite uh, back in 2016. We all met up at SOCAP, 
uh, had an immediate meeting of the minds. Uh, Jen and Mara had written Sex and Startups, which, you know, you must put into the guide for the episode. Oh, for sure. That's going right in the, episode, in the uh, show notes. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I was one of the co-authors of the response together with Ania Williams, who came along as well. And we wrote Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break. And that was, of course, the start of Zebras Unite. And so in my mind, it's all in a very direct line. <laughs> but I can see how from the outside it might look like a real hodgepodge. Or as mm -hmm. my um oh gosh, who just I I I it was somebody in my professional friend circle who said it's really not a career path, it's a career portfolio. I think it's mm. April. I think it's April Rennie who uh who talked talks about career portfolios. And so to me it just looks like an interesting portfolio, but it was not a straight career path that's for yeah. sure well i think there's a lot of places to start from there but i really i like to kick off with we've had experts on ecology experts on economics but we haven't really had any call ecological economist on the show so i'd love to just pick up on that first part and ask you perhaps you know, can you tell the audience what is ecological economics yeah sure um so the field of economics you know is the uh, work of you know markets and firms as if the planet doesn't exist. Uh, environmental economics is saying the the planet is an externality to the economy, <laughs> and and ecological so economists many bones will to pick with that one, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is why ecological economics came along and said no, actually the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the planet and yes. of nature. And when you take that, when you just sit with that for a minute, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, then everything has to be different. Like the way you think about an individual company, right, in terms of how you source your materials, in terms of even how the things you sell, right, like selling single use plastic is a terrible idea if you take a planetary lens. And there are certain things that just don't get made under a lens that takes our existence in nature seriously but it also pertains that like, it also has implications for how we think about the macro economy how we think about everything really in our economy and so i was fortunate to discover one of the um founding fathers if you will of the that field when i was an undergraduate in scotland read his book dick norgard's book development portrayed uh, came out i think in 1994 totally dating myself here uh, and um, and then discovered in working with uh, Amory Lovins, whose book I was helping translate into German, um, that uh, he, you know, I had lunch, dinner with him, and he said, "Oh, with your interest, you really ought to be at the Energy and Resources Group at Berkeley," mm. which did not scream ecological economics. In fact, at the time, again, it's the early '90s. There was no degree program, no no graduate degree program in ecological economics, and he said, "Oh, but Dick is at." Erg, the Energy and Resources Group. And so I applied to exactly one PhD program outside of Germany, and that was the Energy and Resources Group at Berkeley, and then worked with Dick Norgard on, on my PhD. Nice. So I think like you touched on a lot of interesting things there. I think one thing I have I've had in the past somewhat annoying conversations with neoclassical economists who, you know, <laughs> have done exactly what you said in some regards. So I really just so folks really get the difference, right? Like, um, you know, what has your background 
help what your background and the background of people like you what does it help you learn or include you know maybe if it's even in terms maybe you know is it as simple as i have a, a differential equation i included some more terms right or what have you right like what <laughs> helped what what does this education help yourself and others like you grasp that mainstream economists just don't yeah actually math is not a bad place to start um so the reason well, one of the reasons neoclassical economics oversimplifies our relationship with the, the world is because it likes closed form equations, right? Like everything has to equal out nicely. And it that's just not how the world works. Like the, the world is not in constant friggin equilibrium. <laughs> and we're not, you know, we're not uh, utility maximizing robots. Like it's just it's not I mean it's common sense really more than anything else right uh, but yeah like the 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 love of closed formed equations and um and then also this just brazen disregard for anybody but ourselves right I actually had a, I got into a I just laughed at an at a neoclassical economist we were at a at an event in the Netherlands celebrating one of the great um environmental economist Rufi Hüting and this guy we were at a you know like afterwards in Amsterdam you're on a canal you know it's like a dinner cruise or whatever they took all of us out great I'd been one of the speakers because Dick bless his heart he was um at home with his then newborn twins and he sent me and another woman graduate student to give the keynote on his behalf it was such a slap in the face of the establishment they just could not believe that he had the audacity to a send two student. young women, two <laughs> young women. And he's like, well, but this work that you're presenting, we did together. So why would they not accept you anyway? Uh, and on that dinner cruise, like one, I, we, I got into it with a neoclassic economist who basically told me that the future doesn't matter and the interests of future generations don't matter. And he was, he was in his sixties or seventies at the time. And I said, so Wilfred, um, <laughs> just named him. Oops. Uh, so you're telling me that your grandchildren's interests are less important than yours. And he said, yes. And I just laughed. I said, I don't believe you. I, I do not believe you're that bad a granddad <laughs> that you can tell me with a straight face that their interests don't matter and you don't care. In fact, let me ask you this. Do you have a savings account for them? Yes, of course. He was putting money away for their education. And it's just like, it's just cognitive dissonance, right? Like any... <laughs> That's what it comes down to. It's cognitive dissonance. These people don't understand yeah. how life I, really works. Yeah, I think and it's really interesting you put it that way too, because like it it seems like just a I don't know. I I don't want to call it obvious. Maybe 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 it's an insult to all economists everywhere. Sorry, economists. We've had some we've had quite a few on the show, but like, you know, this whole just idea of like this great term you said, which I I use that exact term in the decks that we've used to fundraise for cerulean because we're very much focused on valuing nature and its input to the economy and we've used literally a thing like there's a nice diagram that says there's the nature you know is not it's not a wholly owned subsidiary of the economy it's the other way around right like and i think that's a really interesting way to put it um and i think that you've touched on a number of interesting things there but you talk to economists, it's like, well, I like I just want to make sure that the equations balance out. And I've historically, when I do that, growth results. And it's like, yes, but but where what was the cost of the growth? Growth at what cost? Not yeah, a question also, I'm interested in. <laughs> I mean, look, in nature, like what is uncontrolled growth? That's called cancer. 
yeah, <laughs> you don't it, want that it, exactly <laughs> it's 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 rote at this point right like, i feel like we've been yeah. saying that for like 20 years like the the the, the cancer it's very obvious right um and i mean i don't want to rant on this too much but if i feel like at least the, the results of the last 15 years in complexity economics at least have been able to be like say hey uh, let's actually try to treat this as a computational complexity problem and see if we can get to the bottom of this with other terms that people are like, oh, well, it seems to be fruitful. And but yet it's still dominated by things like this. And I think I actually want to turn back to the to the what it's dominated by, right? What do you what would you call um what are some of the gaps, right? Because you we've covered what this education helped you see that others don't see. But what are the sort of gaps in the current system that an ecological approach can really help you shore up? Yeah, I mean, bear in mind, I I didn't go into the field to stay in the field, right? Like I had a, so I don't actually, um, I think it's, it it is what you just said, right? Like if you, if you take, if you understand the computational complexity, if you just understand the complexity of life, right, <laughs> then you're, then you're, then you're want to take a different, more of a sort of learning mindset approach to anything you encounter, right? Like what's, what's wrong with this picture? And it's it it definitely trains you to question assumptions. It makes you look for patterns. It makes you spot patterns, right? Mm. Because you can't rely on the tidy rationale, right? Like I mean, if we and this is where I mean, I want to I want to I think this is where we get into some of the issues around you know why why we founded Zebras Unite, for example. Yeah. Right. So we, if you um. If you if you question assumptions, right, then you you, you it helps you understand that. Uh, just going back to my personal experience, right, like I was the exact same person when I left EcoTrust um, that that I was when I started meeting with venture capitalists. But all of a sudden, my perfect track record of raising millions of dollars on the basis of selling ideas ground to a halt. What changed? Like my capacity to sell ideas didn't change. Right. The thing that changed was the room I was in. Oh, what kind of room was that, Astrid? Well, it turns out <laughs> it was dominated by middle-aged white guys who, you know, at best, uh, you know, I, I like the, the nicest way you can put it is I wasn't I wasn't matching their pattern. <laughs> right. But it gets if you don't if you don't question the assumption, right, you might say, oh, well, my ideas must not have any merit. It's like, no, my ideas demonstrably have had merit for a long time. It's just all of a sudden you're in a different room and you go, hmm, what's wrong with this picture? Like what's happening here? Right. And then of course yeah. you realize what's happening here is actually systemic. There are entire classes of people that are excluded from access to capital, for example. And it's not because of the merit of the ideas. Yeah. Uh, and so I think seeing seeing patterns and seeing sort of the the institutional interconnectedness of it all right like how how things nest within each other uh is you know i can definitely blame uh my training for that well i think you bring up an interesting uh, almost a a metaphor that we can run with a bit which is like you know what what are the what what are the things you can't see right because this is not even a reality that you can grasp in some ways and so when you think about like what you were doing in your ecological ecological economics background it's hard for people to win or get capital for some of these things when you can't even see the things that they are directing it towards as objects that can return so to speak right so like one yeah. thing i'm talking about in particular is like 
um, which I'm sure probably comports with your past or current experience is when you, when you talk to someone like right now in this moment in August, 2023, a, a really profound and interesting sort of take right now is that there's, there's this group, you're probably familiar with it, Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, right? TNFD. There's the Task Force for Nature Markets. There's the, uh, what was the other one? The, the GBF, the Global Biodiversity Framework. There's all these things emerging that are a result of NGOs, policymakers, and a little bit of participation from private capital, blended finance, and those folks who are now saying, wait, um, this tract of land where normally for the last 300, 400 years, we would have a sovereign or a corporation or someone come along and direct capital towards some extraction that's super obvious because there's a market for it and I can just take the copper or whatever it is and sell it. And But I don't have to worry. My equations don't concern what happens to the land that it's extracted from. I don't have to worry about that part. I'm only talking about markets, right? <laughs> I think mm -hmm. this is this is a very, like, you know, like you said, um, it's hard to go to that same person and say, well, you know what? That that land also is going to seed the next hundred harvests yes. that, of this particular commodity that you depend on. It's also going to have, it's also going to contribute in a number of complex, illegible ways to the biodiversity of this area that's going to seed a whole bunch of other things. And that's where well, <laughs> you know, and, and there you have it, right? Like the idea, I mean, we're blind to so much value that's created that sits outside our, you know, financial markets. Uh, financial capital is just one form of capital, right? Like in one in one framing, right? With this yeah. social, cultural, you name it. It was actually that was actually the <laughs> the the under the motivation for for my doctoral research was to look at this question of how we how how come we keep turning nature <clears throat> into natural resources? Like how does nature become a natural resource? How does that happen? Right, and then we're just back to mining, literally <laughs> stuff. Uh, and um, when I was embarking on my my research project in again early '90s, you know, the big Rio conference had just happened in 1992, and I thought, well, here is a here is a, a form of nature. Here is a locus where you can study this almost in real time because biodiversity and genetic resources, genetic resources, were were just coming into the lexicon. And I thought, well, that's interesting because when you read early uh, papers in economics about the value of biodiversity, you got these wildly, just wildly divergent estimates yeah. from $20 a hectare of rainforest to $20,000 per hectare of rainforest. And that just did not make sense. Like, how can you have three, four orders of magnitude difference right. in the value of a thing? That's just like saying, Oh, Jad, you want to go and buy some milk? It might cost you a dollar or it might cost you $10,000. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> That's insane, right? Like, yeah. like you can't construct a market with those yeah. wildly, you know, varying values on like five orders of magnitude. That's absurd. And I said, well, what the hell is going on there? And so I thought, and this was what I applied to Berkeley with, I thought it was going to be a theoretical piece. I thought mm -hmm. I was going to spend time just constructing a better, you know, open form, you know, not closed form, but open form model. And then very quickly realized in talking to my advisors, I yeah. said, you know, that's actually, it's actually, a, it, it requires field work. Yeah. <laughs> where, do, where the heck can I go to study this in the field? And so I ended up saying, well, pharmaceutical drug discovery is actually the commercial expression of all this, right? 
And so I constructed my fieldwork around the stages of drug discovery, right, from the lab or actually from the rainforest to the lab to uh, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, and come to find out it is it is a constructivist process, right? Like depending on, so the value of nature changes depending on the question you're asking of it. So when the, the disease model is X, a certain compound may not show up as valuable at all. And if you change the disease model, or now we think cancer works this way, all of a sudden it lights up all the robots. And that is literally what happened with Taxol, which is still one of the most powerful cancer drugs in the world. And it had been sitting in a storage vault at the National Institutes of Health for 30 years. And then some scientist comes along and says, let's try the whole mouse model again, because now we think there's something else going on at a more macro mm. level with cancer. And Taxol just knocked it out of the park. And it's still, again, like one of the most uh, widely widely used drugs for uh, tamoxifen, I think, for breast cancer. Well, I... The nature didn't change, but yeah, the value went from zero to infinite. Yeah, and you know, if the microphone caught me snickering during that, it's not because I was laughing at anything you said. It was more that I was laughing at how you started graduate school with, I'm going to have this simple model that maybe values nature and inputs. And then you left, by the time you left, you reinvented the whole economy from first principles. <laughs> That's what it sounded <laughs> like. It's funny. All right. Well, it's I mean, I, I just discovered that I actually had to go out and talk to people, which as an introvert was also a bit terrifying. And so yeah. anyway, that's that's how I came by my ethnographic education. But there you have it. No, same. That totally makes sense. And I think that um, it backdoors into something that we love to focus on here, which is the whole focus of the pod, which is the... Um, basically ownership how what does it result from who gets to own things how what is the governance etc and i think this is where your journey gets super interesting um because you know some of these places we're talking about um there there's multiple intersecting intersecting threads here if you think of pharmaceuticals and drug discovery there's you know frontiers that are not touched yet in terms of ocean and ocean biodiversity and um all the all the metagenomics and things that people are doing to measure that and find new uh compounds that can target new things and you come on to terrestrial and we we're talking about that the interesting question there is you know, and this is the same for financial institutions they always ask oh um yes we're happy to if i'm a banker a financialist i'm happy to invest in something here what is the provenance of the asset what is the thing i own right and then you back out and i'm sure you do this a bit you know we, we keep asking why how do we get here we zoom out a bit and from this one transaction for a, you know maybe a bank doing nature-based solutions or financing of uh, the drug discovery or something you zoom out and you go well how did how did the bank get the capital to do that and how did we how did we where are these where are these capital allocation decisions where do they originate <laughs> and then you you, right. you you follow it all the way and you end up at ownership and, and governance and how we make these decisions so i think this intersects really nicely with your background with zebras, actually. So, uh, I think you had mentioned a little bit of it. You'd mentioned that in 2016 you went to SoCap, the uh, the Impact Investor Conference in San Francisco. I think it's always San Francisco, right? Yes, um, that's right. Um, tell us a little bit about that story because I think it's super prudent to what happens next. Yeah, it is actually, and and it's useful to sort of take the bridge from EcoTrust to zebras. You know, leads through my company, right? So the idea was. Let's see if we can deploy, if we can build and deploy technology that actually 
mobilizes and 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 your word provenance is important right that mobilizes innovations and figures out how we can scale the things that are already working to protect people and planet right so so uh ecotrust for example had an ecological forestry model it works in this bioregion 80% of the model can travel to other countries and to other places so wouldn't it be efficient i guess the german speaking right wouldn't it be great if some a practitioner in, say, China could find the Ecotrust Forest model, making air quotes <laughs> on your podcast, and and then instead of reinventing the whole thing, uh, just adapt it to the forests and the land use in China, right? But take the same DNA of the model and say, oh, that's really interesting. Here's a way we can manage forests for biodiversity and for fresh water and for cultural and ceremonial uses, etc., instead for pulp and paper, right? So the how can we translate that whole business model to a different region in the world? And how can we facilitate that lateral flow of innovation, right? So that's what my company, Amalaria, is is building. Mm. Uh, and and so, so you step out of that, right? Like, so I liberated the, the, the assets, in that case, from the nonprofit, which is hilarious, because I had to buy the thing that I helped Ecotrust event, uh, invent, like the, the prototype for what is now Amalaria, I had to buy, which is oh boy. painful. Oops. Yeah, let's not like there's a whole thing about nonprofits that I, I'm, I that's a whole different rant, maybe a different podcast. But in any event, so so I was in the market, basically fundraising. Uh, come to find out impact investors don't understand technology and tech investors didn't care about impact. And so I was at SoCap hoping to, as you do, right, intersect some potential investors. Right. Come to find out a lot of those investors, you'll be shocked to hear, have venture-style return expectations, even of the impact investments they're making. Because the narrative of the friggin' unicorn and like, uh, right. you know, and, and, and quick and hockey stick style returns and 10x, you know, and even they, they even talk about impact unicorns is so dominant. <laughs> I'm face bombing. <laughs> You can't see it, but yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> sorry. That Continue. sounds you're hearing is just <laughs> palm hitting his face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like, oh. Yeah, I mean, just for you, because I imagine this has got to be even now. It's the worst fundraising environment in like 20 years. But even back then, like if you're if you're up against the unicorn narrative, it's just it's not even it's orthogonal the conversation. It's just not even. Yeah, it's so painful, <laughs> and it's it's like and and I think. And that is actually, it remains my persistent criticism of impact investors. I think a lot of them are just not very clear in their minds about the 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 the, the sort of the inconsistency, the again, the cognitive dissonance between what they say they want to do in the world and then the financial return expectations they attach to that. And in some ways, I wasn't surprised. Like even again, speaking about Ecotrust, you know, the first um, forest fund we raised, Fund One, was an evergreen fund, mm -hmm. and it was it was making financial returns, right? And our lead investor, so you you cranking out your quarterly reports, right? And our lead investor, like every quarter, her financial advisor would put that report into her charitable summary. It's like it's not charitable; it's a real estate. It's like a real asset type investment, not real estate, real asset. Yeah. Why are you putting it in the charitable column, right? Like uh, that narrative and the the practices around it are so pervasive. Yeah. And so that's what we ran into while trying to raise uh, essentially venture funding for what is now Amalaria, because impact investors would say, well, how, when are you going to get to a million dollar in ARR? I'm like, 
if I had a million in ARR, I would not be raising venture because then I would just be making a profit. Right? But the the model, like the, they didn't even have the language to, it was either a venture style equity investment or it was a loan. And it, it, there wasn't like seven years ago, there we didn't even have the, the language. I mean, there were a few people who were making mezzanine investment yeah. investments right in the social enterprise space but thank thank goodness for uh Arnie Patton Powers book on adventure finance now we have 50 50 case studies right or whatever however yeah. many she's got in her book that that paint the picture of alternative structures but in 2016 what was so hard is you as the entrepreneur had to educate every single investor and I'm sure you run into this oh yeah like you, you have to do so much education Who's got the time, right? Whereas, whereas the tech bros with their decks or their, you know, back of the napkin, like they just paint a picture. They're asking for a safe note, 5 million pre-valuation, blah, 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 right? And it's like, you know, how many billions did Uber raise before they turned a profit? Like if you'd invested 200 billion into me, I guarantee you I'd be running a profitable business too. <laughs> <laughs> it just gives you so much search space. You got all this time, right? Yeah, it's a really, right? really good. No, I mean point. it's just it's just ridiculous, right? And yeah. so anyway, so the the market just wasn't ready, like by any stretch. And yeah. and the thing that emerged, and that is sort of the link to to zebras here very directly, is like there wasn't there wasn't a home for entrepreneurs like myself, right? Like if yeah. you were building purposeful technology. And you were not a good fit. Like I had several people actually, uh, uh, Nigel Kershaw, Sir Nigel Kershaw, big issue invest in the UK. He said, you know, anybody who asks you for your elevator pitch is already not the right investor. Yeah. Like you're trying to solve a complex problem. Absolutely. You can't be put into a two-line pitch for it's going like you're, from four to You're missing the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so that's, that's what led me in, in a pretty direct path uh, to Zebras Unite because at SOCAP in 2016, I think it was Kevin Jones, actually, one of the founders of SoCap. I was sitting with him. He was acting as an advisor to my company. And he said, oh, I just met this really interesting woman. She's also from Portland. You should talk to her. And that was Mata Zepeda, mm -hmm. who had earlier that year with Jen Brandel written Sex and Startups. And so then Mata and I met in Portland, hit it off, did some other things together, including creating a, a, a loan fund and entrepreneur support program for um, growth stage women entrepreneurs in Oregon. Um, but then the the big thing we, we all did together, of course, was write Zebra's Fixed Foot Unicorns Break. Um, and then that unleashed the, the global movement that we know now. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about that for folks who haven't heard about it. What is it? What is Zebra's <laughs> What? What? There are people who haven't heard of Zebra's Which, Unicorns. I mean... Side Shocking. note, I've I've gone through the onboarding, so I could sort of answer that question, but why do that when I have you here? <laughs> Perfect. Well, I mean, long story short, right? Like, so Jen and Mata had written Sex and Startups, and it's hilarious. I mean, you have to read it. It's just oh, such it's, a send-up. It'll, it'll be in the show notes. It already is. <laughs> it's, a, it's not just send-up of the whole, uh, you know, VC world. And once you read it, you can't unsee it, right? Like, you can't unsee the patterns that are so prevalent there. Um, and I won't give it away for people who haven't read it yet. But the legitimate question was, then now what, right? Like, if you don't like venture, if you don't like the VC world, what's the alternative? What do you propose? Like, if not unicorns, then what? And and so we wrote, and it was fun to write, um, 
zebras fix what unicorns break to basically begin to sketch out an alternative vision and framing for startups that are motivated by profitability, not just the next valuation and, and the next round they're raising, who treat their customers as part of a community, not as something you churn through right, and discard, um, who have probably wired into their DNA of what they're building and how they're building it, um, you know, a greater set of considerations for their community, for the planet, you name it, you know, who are interested not in disruption for disruption's sake, but look, finding problems to solutions, right, for healing systems rather than disrupting them. And so on and on, like we had a, we had, there's a whole table in Zebra's Fix What Unicorns Break. And it turns out it resonated with people from all over the world. Like that was really the shocker. Like we thought we were describing our experience and it was a little tongue in cheek and, you know, unicorns are mythical, zebras are real, they're black and white, profit and purpose, they're feisty. If you've ever seen a zebra go up against a lion, right? They're yeah. uh they 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 move in in herds. And a herd, of course, is called a dazzle. So we had so much fun. So good. But then the emails started pouring in and the direct messages. And it's like, what have we done? <laughs> there are people everywhere saying, I am a zebra. I want to invest in them. How do I build it? You know, where do I go? I I remember this because I that was around for me. I think I found it in 2017. So, uh, my my motivation for it was just you know we've had Jen Horn and Jeff on the on the uh, podcast mm -hmm. as well, Savvy Cooperative, and I had been interested in the platform co-op space. But what I found really interesting about it is that once again, once you get started and you start asking the why questions, you I feel like at least looking at it from the outside and a little bit on the inside for zebras you. I feel like you reinvented the entire capital stack almost. And then that, that sort of led you to B6 and other things, which we'll get to, but right. Like yeah. I'm, I'm talking about like, you, you, you created a constellation of, of organizations seemingly yeah. within Zebras, which can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like how did they come to be and why? Cause you, yeah. start, you start, people start saying, I'm a zebra, I'm a zebra. And then you, you just run. Yeah. With it, like, and so this is actually relevant, right? Like my having come out of the nonprofit space, I, there was no way in hell I was going to found a nonprofit. I was just <laughs> no, no way, no how. Fair. Those things don't scale. <laughs> and anything interesting you do, the IP is forever locked up. I mean, again, I had to buy my own business. Like the thing that I invented inside Ecotrust, I then had to buy. Because if you don't do that as a nonprofit, you you threaten your entire charitable status. And people don't know this. Like they, I have a huge problem with all these well-intentioned people who keep creating nonprofits, especially if they are from already marginalized communities. Like if I see one more like black or brown run nonprofit that that wants to do something interesting with capital, I'm, I'm just gonna stick a fork in my eyeball because it's just like these things don't scale. Yeah. You cannot reward you yourself financially for the value you're creating in the world. Yeah. So anyway, end of rant, whatever you do, dear listener, do not create a nonprofit. <laughs> so, so, so this, it was, but it, so it was interesting, right? Like with Zebras, we had articulated, um, so first we invited everybody to Portland to a conference to figure out what this thing wanted to be. We're like, who are, who are you people? What do you want? 
what 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 does this want to be? And so that's where the three pillars really emerged, right? Capital, community, and culture. Mm. And culture really, it's like the whole educating the world, educating the market about this alternative way to building businesses that is neither a, a, a lifestyle business like a mom and pop, right? Or just the one your restaurant on Main Street. No, you can be you can be an ambitious entrepreneur like Jen, you know, Hanya from Zasavi. Mm-hmm. Wickedly ambitious, wickedly smart entrepreneur, just community-minded, right? So a Delaware C-Corp is not the right structure for her business, and then everything else falls out of that decision in terms of the capital she can raise, et cetera. So where where do entrepreneurs like Jen go, right? And so that's where we realize like, oh, this needs to be some kind of persistent something. But I was ready to just die on that hill. It's not going to be a nonprofit. And so... That's where we got into some very productive conversations around like, what what would it look like to own the thing? Like, what would it look like to create a thing that you can own as an entrepreneur that helps you accomplish the things that you need, right? Like that, that provides the community capital and culture that you need for your business, for your enterprise to thrive. And so very quickly, we landed on the idea that Zebras Unite is a multi-stakeholder cooperative mm. by design. But then guess what? Guess Guess what is the easiest way to get money? Well, of course, it's a friggin' donation or a grant. Mm. And so we knew we probably wanted a uh, a sidecar that's a nonprofit, and and so we basically designed it as a as a hybrid from the get go. Got it. And then tell us a bit about the ownership structure, right? How does one become a member? And of course, let's walk it back, right? I I hear this great. I see this great almost I might be putting words into your into your mouth and your co-founder's mouth but I gravitated towards it because it was kind of like a screed against you know a whole bunch of chumps that were kind of in my in my in my in some of my circles right so I'm like oh this mm-hmm. is great right so I I read the screed and go oh, hey actually I'm I'm one of those people I'm I I want to I want to join that movement right but you took some really interesting steps in that you turned the movement into very specific legal, you know, intersubjective realities that people could then act on in the world, right? So what what ended up becoming the sort of parallel for it on paper when you when someone says, what is this thing? What is this thing? How do I sign up? Yeah. Yeah. So so it's currently two entities, right? So we have um, a nonprofit uh, chartered here in the US 501c3. The application for nonprofit status of which we wrote so broadly enough that it could hold for-profit interests. And you have to be careful, right? Like my, many people, it's like the 1023, as was a very important form. <laughs> so we wrote it carefully enough. So And the IRS came back to us with questions saying, what do you exactly mean by for-profit business, right? So you have to be prepared for a little bit of back and forth here. Of course. But we based, so we got the, uh, I think, I think we charted the C3 for, I forget how we, what the sequence actually is now. I think we're doing it truly in parallel, but in any event, the the C3 has its charter written broadly enough so it can hold for-profit interest. And so that's how it can hold a golden share in the co-op, right? So the, so we have four uh, shareholder classes in the co-op. We have the shareholder, the golden share, which is a class of one. That is currently held by the Zebus Unite C3. It could, in theory, be held by another nonprofit. And that golden share has very limited rights, 
right? Like even though, and we used it as the mechanism to transfer all the IP and all the assets into the co-op, right? And in exchange, it gets this golden share that has super extra duper, super duper extra special powers that basically comes down to, you know, they get they don't get to throw their weight around because of the value of the share. Mm. It was valued at several hundred thousand dollars at the time. Yeah. But because they're holding the mission anchor. And so I think the this that the golden share has to vote in the affirmative, should Zebus Unite ever want to demutualize? Right. So so Facebook comes along and says, we want to buy you Zebus Unite. In theory, the membership could say, that's a great idea. Let's sell ourselves to Meta. The um the golden share would have to vote in the affirmative. So they have the ultimate veto in the case of a proposed demutualization. And what's the how does the governance of the golden share work? Is it like the four co-founders? Is it someone external? How does it work? No. So the the golden share is held by the nonprofit entity mm -hmm. that has its own separate board. And the four uh, co-founders, the doulas, as we like to call ourselves, uh, we have representation on that board, but we don't control the board anymore. So we have we we've written Very ourselves cool. out of out of it, right? So. I am at the moment on the C3 board as the designated doula director, but it could be any of the four of us. Got it. Right, and so so like, great. So th this is super cool because we have people come on here or, you know, just out in general and, you know, whether they're Web3 or whether they're someone else, you know, like we've decentralized her, but you have truly done so in many ways and in an impactful <laughs> way where you... Yeah. It's interesting on a number of levels because you're able to have a very simple structure on paper and then behind it, you can think through the social complexity of it and say, well, who should really have a voice in this thing? And what things can they act on in the world? Because there are some things, honestly, it's better to do them by subtraction almost and say, here's some things we never want to happen. <laughs> right? right. And so we'll yeah. assign those to the golden share. That's our stopgap. Very straightforward. Right. And yeah. just so that you don't have to do the other thing of like, well, Let's go through everything and say, well, 66% here, 50, 51% here, all these, uh, it can really quickly get out of hand. And it's how these yeah. organizations have difficulty reaching social consensus. So oh, interesting. that's going to be an understatement. <laughs> and look, it's still not easy, right? Like it's yeah. easy to describe. It was easy-ish to design once you found the right lawyers who were willing to actually work with each other instead of, because of course the nonprofit has to have its own lawyers and the for-profit and just finding two sets of lawyers who would not be in an adversarial relationship. I'm like, okay, stop. Yeah. You're you're representing two sides. Like imagine it as a twin propeller airplane. Yeah. Like we need both engines for the plane to fly. We cannot have you in 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 an adversarial <laughs> relationship negotiating the interests of the C3 or the interests of the co-op. Stop. Yeah. That's funny because <laughs> it's funny because I feel like the the flip side of this podcast can often be how do lawyers keep making all the money? because <laughs> it's not just this episode that's where every half half the time we end up in and then so we had to get the lawyers we had some really nice ones who helped us figure this this particular thing out i'm like my god the lawyers keep making money they always find the lawyers <laughs> the lawyers do keep making money it is uh, that is a, a total truth here but in um, any event so so we have the golden share right and then we have three other uh share classes we have the doulas we have a general class uh and we have an institutional class uh, and then we have actually a fourth share class, but it doesn't have any voting rights. So we have an uh, an investor class in the co-op. So the co-op can conceivably receive mm. outside investment, except that doesn't give you any special rights on on governance. 
Got it. And I think that's a really interesting that we talk about this quite a bit. Like, how do you find that balance between um upside and governance? And I think this is a really interesting place. I think honestly, I think very often you just have to say it you you have information rights. That's about it. <laughs> like you you can't say, oh, I'm doing this and that, taking in this direction, right? Like Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's actually for the right investor, right? It's yeah, you can have information rights, uh, sure. You can have a board observer, sure. But also you can have preferential dividend rights. Right? Yeah. You can actually do a preferred, you know, share essentially and say, yeah, the investors get paid first out of any profit. Totally yeah. legit. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if you have a a structure and potentially even technology that helps you begin to attribute actions in the network to investors, to participants, to you know, whatever you want. If you can show that you are the catalyst for something. That's the that should be the, very theoretically possible in the year 2023 to say like we injected liquidity here it helped the co-op form these these initiatives that resulted in these economic opportunities so that's always the thing that we're super interested in um I do want to now a little bit you know this is a great exploration to see how you set up an alternative organization and I want to end now on the current stuff that you're doing in terms of alternative capital capital formation um and so um that would be basically armillaria and p6 capital but i think we touched on armillaria a little bit so let's kind of touch on both if you don't mind yeah no for sure so again armillaria is actually just my company right so it is the thing that we spun out of ecotrust i've got some great business partners we merged with another company we're going through the next iteration of reorganizing ourselves to be more effective as a global uh, systems lab for equitable economies and one of the things so we, we basically have Amalaria focuses on pro a product yes infrastructure as a service for the sorts of things that Zebras Unite is building um, we also designed a process and that's directly what we're using for the capital ecosystem design work at Zebras Unite and elsewhere and then we're focused on a protocol layer of defining standards for information about uh, scalable solutions. There's not enough structured data in the social change space. Um, you know, people now there, everybody's excited about generative AI. I'm like, if you don't have structured data, you don't have AI. Um, so let's, but if you have structured data, you could do things before the AI technology is ready. So we're focused on getting to more structured data on uh, describing innovations that are actually generating a positive impact in the world. And that also goes with a, there's a solution standard and a deal standard we're interested in working on to basically generate more innovation liquidity. Uh, on the process piece, right? So we've come up with a way to basically do participatory capital product design. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of the realization um, initially at Zebus Unite that the world probably doesn't need another fund. Like people were asking us from the get-go, you know, where's the zebra fund that I can invest in? And what we realized is, uh, you know, there's a there's a ton of interesting funds out there that are that are innovating in exactly the direction that we need. You know, you mentioned Jen; she uh, had, one of her investors is IndyVC. Mm -hmm. You know, Bryce Roberts, yep. clearly a leader on revenue based financing, and he got a little bit burnt uh, in his first stepping out. I think they're about to open Indy 2.0. Uh, in September, super exciting, right? Yeah, and um, that's a, it's interesting. You're 100 right too. Like he delivered, from what I could see, just 
actually industry beating benchmarks, at least for IRR yes. and what he shared. Just it's in yes, it's nuts. As have but... <laughs> other people. It's as have other people who've used a revenue based strategy. If you talk yeah. to Anea Benami from from Candide, that family office, yeah, you know, they they they, they beat the industry benchmarks. Right, like a Absolutely. lot of people, and and revenue based financing is basically playing money ball as opposed to hitting home runs. Right, like there yeah. you're not you're not trying to hit home runs. You're trying to optimize your cross portfolio. You have your whatever, however you turn the dial two to five x, right? Yeah. And that on on average actually outperforms the vast majority of venture funds because most things are that. <laughs> Duh, right. And also, what's wrong with a hundred fifty million dollar exit, my friend? Like, what is wrong with the, like, nothing? Is the answer? There's absolutely nothing wrong yes. with a hundred fifty million dollar anyway. But we digress. So anyway, at Zebras, we said, um, well, we probably don't just want to commit to the one fund because one fund means one thesis, one structure, right? Yeah. And so we, and at the same time, we realized there are a lot of people coming up with new innovative funds that are using real estate or equity or debt in these really innovative way to support entrepreneurs that can't easily get access to capital. And so that realization combined with Amalaria's capital ecosystem design process led us um, to basically take a participatory multi-stakeholder approach to saying, what, how can we serve a group of capital innovators in a place, and the place being the United States, and the group of capital innovators being further described by uh, their demographic makeup, um, notably BIPOC uh, folks who are basically developing capital instruments to help their communities because they can't get the capital, right? And so that that's the design process approach that takes us down the path of then creating the Inclusive Capital Collective, which is being incubated under uh, under Zebras Unite, again, as a hybrid co-op nonprofit, with the idea that you really want the, the BIPOC fund managers to own, literally own, the financial infrastructure that mobilizes more capital or credit enhancement or technical assistance for all of their projects and funds to succeed. So it becomes almost like a community-owned investment bank. And why not? <laughs> right? Yeah. There are other co-op banking fin uh, financial institutions. And so so that's that's the, the trajectory that the ICC is on. That's super cool because I think that it's a world where, you know, speaking to that from the inside and also being an outsider and breaking in, um, that's when you really sit down at a, and look at it from a top-down point of view and you go, where is all the capital? You know, there's like, 12 trillion dollars of it in family offices there's some absurdly huge amount in asset managers which you know you could go your entire life most human beings on earth could go their entire life and not know what an asset manager is <laughs> right so like having yeah. having some form of a vehicle that it also just it just simply lets people understand that this is a thing that's possible I think is really yeah. important, right? To be like, actually, did you know that you don't have to go to the bank for one of these small bu small business loans, which they probably will deny you anyway, uh, or even you don't have to do a credit card thing either, which is just terrible. We could have our own forms of capital and have our own vested ownership um, exactly. ways of owning, right? Exactly, right? And yeah. why not put that that liberatory capital infrastructure literally in the ownership? of the people it's intended to serve, right? And so and so the ICC is doing things like creating a credit enhancement facility 
that is available to its members. You know, we have begun exploring what it would look like to uh, tap into some of the federal uh, tax credit programs like new market tax credits. And again, just take control of that whole value chain, not just, you know, show up as a broker and take a few, you know, basis points, but actually just own that whole friggin' value chain. Um, yeah. And so that's that's sort of the same logic that motivates us with other capital ecosystem design projects. And so the one I think that you're interested in is around collective ownership. Yeah. Six, right? So Absolutely. Well, you backed into it. I, I just wanted to, before we get into it, just this, a little bit of context setting. We had folks like um, Zoe Schlag from Common Trust has been on the pod. We've had, a, uh, we've covered kind of the gamut of LLC, C-Corp, S-Corp, cooperative, limited, limited cooperative association, all the various forms this could take. And then we've poked and prodded at, you know, what are the trade-offs of organizing as a co-op? What does it, what does it help you scale? What does it kind of shut down for you? And, you know, a lot of folks, there've been positives and negatives, right? But what I found really interesting about your P6 experiment and why I also think Zoe's experiment is very interesting is that at every journey in a firm, business, whatever thing you are building at every, at every juncture, there just needs to be this is a common theme. There just needs to be more innovation in the types of capital and structures that are available because not everyone needs to be an LLC or a C corp or an S corp or something else that makes it easy for an investor to give you money. There right. needs to be some other way to say, I won't want to do that. I want to, I don't want to take that path. I want to take this path. I don't want to take something else and make it do this. <laughs> right. So I think that's why for me, I was very intrigued by what you're building P6 because it's basically trying to yeah. just do another interesting experiment where people have said, you know, I would like to seed or pre-seed or early as early as possible risk capital into these cooperative ventures. And in my experience so far, I've yet to see someone say, great, let's do that. That's really easy. <laughs> <All right>. so, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Hint, hint. You know, it's not easy. Um, yeah, and then we actually came into this work around what we're now calling P6 Capital, and it's like literally P6, like letter P, number six, dot capital. Um, through the Zebras Unite's own needs, right? So we're a multi-stakeholder co-op. Um, we're revenue-funded. That's crazy. Like, you just want to appreciate that we are a revenue-funded global movement in, that's functioning as a co-op. It's crazy it's like that's like the hardest thing you can try don't try that like please don't don't <laughs> if you're listening don't do that it's it's really hard but we we are revenue positive right we're actually uh i don't know what we're going to be this year what we're going to finish up but it's in the high six figures right it's it's respectable and um maybe we'll scratch a million we're definitely scratching a million on the c3 side there that's where we're in the multiple millions but on the on the co-op side we're like call it a million right making revenue from not just memberships, but providing advisory services, right? Do you think we can get a line of credit? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so including, and this is how all of this started, right? Including from the National Co-op Bank. Like I'll never forget, I was uh, I was actually at a retreat with the other doulas. Uh, it was like December, a couple couple years ago, and I get this call from the president of the National Co-op Bank, where he basically said, "This is ridiculous. We're just gonna have to figure this out systemically. Like, we can't underwrite a line of credit for you. This is stupid. Help us." 
help us figure this out. And I mean, there's there's more to it than that. Like one project came in on it, but um, who are very interested in the sort of whole post-capitalist economy. So we had this really interesting convergence of a family office that basically says, post-capitalist everything, like burn it down, right? rebuild it on crypto. And this Wait, very- that- Th- that was one project you're referring to, right? Or yes. okay, got you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and then on the other side, them. and on the other side, you have this very state traditional but co-op banker. I'm like, wow, this is hilarious. And both organizations actually send people to the week, including Casey, uh, uh, the, the 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 president of the National Co-op Bank, attended just about weekly meetings of this project because he's so into it and figuring this out. And so what we tried to figure out is like, how do you mobilize more capital into these newfangled co-ops that like Zebos Unite are, or like Savvy Co-op are, are tech enabled, right? They rely on technology to do the thing they do to create the value they create. It's not a food co-op. It's not an agricultural co-op. It's not like any of the co-ops that the co-op bank is comfortable underwriting. It's not a rural electric. So they just don't know how to underwrite tech co-ops. But as you and I know, like the cooperative structure is so powerful for tech platforms, right? Like if yeah. Uber, if Uber was a co-op, right? Like that is that is the premise of the drivers co-op in New York. Uh, but now you're in the world, and this is sort of we're backing into the problem, right? Can can yeah. can you find a line of credit with difficulty, right? Like six figure line of credit, really hard to find. We're still at it. It's been a year and a half. Zebus Unite has been in negotiations with various co-op lenders about a line of credit can't find it for the life of i mean we can't oh, find boy. it but the, the diligence is ridiculous right yeah uh and it's also a year and a half like this is not moving at the pace of business the other thing that's really hard to find is if you're a new tech enabled co-op like if you're the driver's co-op and i'm not speaking out of turn Alyssa orlando one of the co-founders uh, of the driver's co-op uh you know led the project on p6 capital uh with with uh, me on, on the Zebus United side, mm-hmm. um, you know, you need startup capital. Like if you're going to build a two-sided marketplace and you want to make your drivers and your customers members of a co-op, like who are your drivers, right? They're immigrants. They are people who don't have the money for a taxi medallion. They're sure as heck not going to have the money uh, to buy, like put cash into a brand new co-op, right? So you're up against the same s- systemic wealth gaps. And the people who most benefit from co-ops are likely the ones that don't have the wealth to begin with, right? So how do you, where do you find seed funding for a new co-op? Where do you find funding to do, to convert an existing business, right? The silver tsunami that's coming. There are so many business owners who just want to get out yep. and that could, whose businesses could be converted into employee or multi-stakeholder ownership. Absolutely. How, how do you finance those conversions? And so the interesting thing in that project was we kept hearing like from some of the CDFIs, the community development financial institutions that focus on that specialize on loans to co-ops. Oh, there's just no demand. We're like, really? Because I have a six figure demand. Alyssa, who was building a search fund at the time, was seeing all these opportunities of, you know, uh, cash positive, revenue positive businesses, profitable businesses that were looking for conversion financing in the low tens of millions. And then over here, our friends in the co-op financial institutions were saying, we're not seeing the deals. And then what we realized what's happening is, oh, 
you're not seeing the deals that you can underwrite. You're but the right. other, the rest of the iceberg that is out there that would be so lucrative, you can't touch because you don't have the balance sheet. Right? Like if somebody comes along, we had a like a BIPOC owned marketing firm that was looking to sell itself to its employees. The owners took a huge, uh, like 25% um, haircut. A discount yeah, yeah. On, on, on the valuation, blah, blah, blah. They were basically self-financing. They just needed a little bit, like $2 million or whatever. Most CDFIs that specialize in co-ops can't do a $2 million deal. No. Much less no. a $12 million deal. Oh. It's ridiculous. Oh, my god. Because goodness. if your balance sheet... Yeah, think about it. If your balance sheet is $25 million or $50 million, which is roughly the size of a lot of these smaller CDFIs that are in the co-op space, you can't do the transaction. You don't have the balance sheet. So, oops, we don't see the deal flow. It's like no, you just don't have the balance sheet. And so the first, so the first thing we did is, and that's what you see on the website at p6.capital. It's basically a super simplistic syndication network where we try to bring the two sides of the market together and where we can help financial institutions sort of daisy chain themselves together and come into a big deal, into a deal. Sorry, not a big deal <laughs> by any yeah. stretch. A deal that's too big for them. Right. And so we're looking, I think Alyssa was saying we've we've facilitated something like 35 or 50 million in, in deals this year to date. Wow. Okay. Which is also not a lot of money, but it's sure heck more than yeah, anybody else has mobilized. Yeah, it's interesting volume for sure. It doesn't end up being like I, I don't really I don't know the economics, but yeah, like scaling that up, I mean God, there's as you said, there's just got to be so much unmet demand in there, right? It's so you so just, much unmet demand. It's so ridiculous. Much. And yeah. I, you know, you're I, you named a few folks here, but it seems like there are a lot of co-conspirators in this journey as well. Like Common Trust, that's basically a big yeah. focus for Zoe is basically saying, how do I how do I finance these in an equitable way? How do I find the companies? How do I convert them to employee ownership? Um, that's you know who else is kind of in that constellation working with you folks there's common trust there's you is it just is it crickets <laughs> like, like what's, what's going <laughs> no, on crickets. no i think common trust i mean i think there is um i think there's an so there's definitely a number of advisory firms right that are springing up and then there's a bunch of new funds or or people who are trying to pool some capital around facilitating those uh conversions uh and that's been good to see um you know our friends at social uh Social capital partners out of the out of Canada are just Canada, yep. standing up something new. I think, um, yeah, there's a bunch of players on on the scene, right? Like they're um, who are who are sort of playing playing in this in this ecosystem. And I think the interesting question is, and um, Alison Lingade from Project Equity has been asking it very very you know vociferously actually is like how does this add up to the billions? Like how do we right? Like I mean yes. we, we observe. We, there's sort of a lot of boutique firms in this space now, but how does that do we do we undertake some kind of roll up? Like, what's the like all, all private equity could conceivably be used for employee ownership or any kind of yeah. like these ownership conversions at large? Yeah, like like what's what's the billion dollar vehicle that we can all agree on and go to market with? Because the opportunity is just so huge. Absolutely, and I think like. Well, I think that's actually a good place to sum it up for today. I think because really, I want to hear from you in like 
nine to 12 months and see <laughs> if you if you put together that billion dollar vehicle because it sounds well we're sure exciting. we're sure gonna try i mean we're convening ahead of um i don't know when you're planning to air this podcast but ahead of we, we're putting together a, a, a ahead of DazzleCon, right? So DazzleCon happens in Washington, D.C., um, October 20th and 21st. On October 19th, we're actually having a smaller um, invitation-only conversation about exactly this. Like, how might we begin to ladder these things up so so that it becomes, um, you know, we just add a few zeros to the to the available capital in this space. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and I think that there's definitely a number of folks in our in our the podcast circle alone who would be interested in having that chat with that DazzleCon. So, actually, a good place, real quick. Uh, where can we follow all of your work online? Because I know you should definitely tell us a bit about DazzleCon, a little bit about yeah. zebras, P6 and Armillaria. So, please, where can we find all your work <laughs> online? Well, that's funny. Like, if you're asking me about my work, it's well, the answer sadly probably is LinkedIn. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I have a personal web page, um, uh, astrojschultz.com. But uh, but yeah, so the Zebra stuff, of course, zebrasunite.coop. Um, and, and you'll see some launching off points there to DazzleCon and to uh, joining up. Membership is going to be opened again after DazzleCon this, this fall. Um, and then Armillaria is at armillaria.io, um, named after the largest living organism on Earth. Uh, it happens to be a fungus under Oregon and Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, those are the those are some good places to uh, to find me online. And then I'm 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 sadly not joking about LinkedIn. That's actually a really good place to find me these days. Um, <laughs> no, so I I unabashedly agree. So I mean, uh, two years ago, the the funny joke started being when people were putting updating their LinkedIn stuff. I never respond to things here, and I'm just like, man, you're missing out. That's fine, 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 fine. More more, more for us. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, with all the with all the drama on, you know, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and uh, it's like, yeah, like LinkedIn, all of a sudden, is cool again. I refuse. Oh, maybe it is cool, not cool again. <laughs> I refuse <laughs> to call it X. So fair, fair enough. But I think just to pump it one more time, definitely check out DazzleCon. Go to uh, that's zebrasunite.coop/dazzlecon and uh, check it out. And it's going to be in Washington, D.C., October 20th, 21st. Definitely check it out. I think, as you heard in the pod, there's just so many interesting things going on in this space, from capital formation to founders to ideas, entrepreneurs, just jobs, everything you could potentially think of if you're like, hey, where's this new, where is a new economy being formed in front of my very eyes? That's a great place to go and check it out. Yeah, definitely. If you want to roll up your sleeves, if you want to join us in the forge, <laughs> you know, come <laughs> come along to DazzleCon and definitely check out uh, zebrasunite.coop. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Astrid, thanks a lot for joining us today and thanks for leading us through the complex, but, you know, at the end, it makes a lot of sense. Sense-making journey. <laughs> Thank you. Story. Thank you for validating my experience. Of like, yeah, It all makes sense. It seems convoluted, but at the end of the day, it makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.